Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Before we get into our show, we'd like to ask you to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. And today I'm speaking with philanthropist Abigail Disney, the co-director of The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, a look at wealth inequality at Disney. By a show of hands, how many of you have someone you know that works at Disney that's on food stamps? Wow. How many of you know somebody who works at Disney who's slept in their car in the last oh. couple of years? How many of you know somebody who have gone without medical care oh. because they can't afford it? <laughs> How many of you all have children? I am somebody who doesn't have kids. I don't have the finances to take care of a child in the way that I would like to. It's affected my ability to family plan and to look towards my future as far as my personal life. And it's not, you know, this is not where I thought I'd be at 33. Well, it's known as the happiest place on earth, but behind the facade, there's another side to Disneyland many people don't see. Employees working two jobs to make ends meet, some sleeping in their cars because they can't afford to pay rent, some using food stamps to feed their families. All this while the company earns big profits and its CEO earns millions of dollars, even during a pandemic. You know, Nam, I remember you once blaming Disney movies for all the <laughs> ills of online dating. So what did you think of this movie? Well, I stand by that. I stand by that, by the way. But this documentary is... <laughs> This documentary is um, frustrating and it's heartbreaking, but it's also very educational. I have a little bit of a confession. Uh, when I graduated from university, I really wanted to treat myself with a trip to Disneyland, um, even though I was like, you know, 19. But then I remembered student loans, so I didn't end up going. Um, but this documentary raises the question of who matters the most, the individuals who work for the company or the company that is beholden to its shareholders that hold all the power. Disney's brand is that it's the happiest place on earth, yet the people who work there, and they work there full time, rely on food banks and have lack of access to affordable health care. Um, someone in the doc says, the focus of Disney is on the happiness of the kids of the tourists, but not on the kids that live there. And I really hope that fans of Disney, um, after they watch this documentary, that they think long and hard about where their money is supporting, because I could never go to Disneyland after watching this. I actually never went to Disneyland either. I just couldn't afford it. My parents never took us either, but... We, they made the right decision, unknowingly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically. If, we, if they had known what was going on there, they probably wouldn't have taken us. The film doesn't just stop at showing us the unequal treatment of Disney employees. It also looks at how Disney promoted this myth of the American dream and how you can get a comfortable middle-class life while also perpetuating pretty racist stereotypes of black, indigenous folks. Did you notice these things when you were watching Disney growing up? No, I didn't. And <laughs> I, that it makes me feel a certain kind of way. Um, it makes me sad, and it also makes me feel kind of let down. Um, and I also don't know if we had permission back then to be upset or to even question how we were depicted. 
if it was on TV, it meant that it was true. And if it was in the movies, that was like the gospel, right? Um, I mean, I used to collect Disney movies. And when I started to rewatch them after I had kids, that's when I started to notice uh, those depictions. And it made me uncomfortable that I bought into some of those stereotypes and tropes. I think now when you watch a Disney movie on Disney Plus, like an old one, like say Peter Pan, they actually put a disclaimer just saying how it's culturally insensitive. So I think there's been some change on that front. But yeah, watching it in now, it's just very jarring to see. Well, now, it's, it's not a coincidence that the director's last name is Disney. Abigail is part of the Disney family. Her grandfather was Roy Disney. He was the co-founder of the company with his brother, Walt. Now, she has no role with the company itself, but she can email former CEO Bob Iger her complaints about how much his employees are making. So there's that. Well, um, it's interesting because she is part of the 1%. Um, she's also benefiting from the labor of these employees as she features in the documentary twofold, I might add. Without them in the documentary, she wouldn't have had a story to tell. And even though her wealth is inherited, I mean, she hasn't denounced her inheritance. And I don't think she should have to. Um, she can't help being born into the family. I do admire her tenacity and for pushing back against this powerful entity. She spoke about the difficulties her father faced too when he tried to speak out. And she notes it's impossible to speak out against Disney. And I also think that um, only a Disney could have made this documentary. I can only imagine like the stuff happening behind the scenes and the amount of resources that were used to challenge her behind the scenes. Well, in our conversation, Abigail Disney and I get into how Disneyland treats its workers, the ways in which Disney promoted a whitewashed version of the American dream, and much more. Stay with us. Well, Abigail Disney, thank you so so much for joining me today on OnDocs. I'm so pleased to be able to join you. I want to start by asking you about uh, a call that you received from a worker at Disneyland asking for your help. And I'm wondering who called you and what did he want? Well, actually, he Facebook messaged me. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. And, you know, I actually have, because there's a lot of people trying to contact me all the time, I have people kind of helping me not have to talk to everyone who wants to talk to me because I would um, not survive that. So um, he, he sent a Facebook message and I almost never look at them for some reason that I don't understand. I looked at his. I really don't understand. And... Um, it was, uh, you know, it was sort of confirming what I already knew deep down that things weren't going well for workers there. And uh, I, you know, you can't that I feel too much like I have gained so much from the company and the work in the park that I couldn't pretend that what the, happens to the workers has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. And and this this gentleman's name, this was Ralph, right? Yeah. And yeah, he worked at, and he works he worked at Disneyland. He worked there with his wife Trina and mm-hmm. uh actually there's a few other employees that you talk to who work at Disneyland, uh Artemis, Ellie. Could you just talk a bit about what they did at Disneyland? Well, all four were custodians. So, um, you know, the park one of the things selling points of it is how clean it is. It's been since the beginning that it's just this you can eat off the sidewalk there. So that's a thing they take great pride in. So the custodians are very important to the way the park runs. So they go in there at night. The third shift workers are Artemis and Ralph and Trina are all third shift workers. Artemis, sorry, um, Ellie worked um, part-time and so kind of floated around. But the rest of them got up 
you know, and went to work at 11 o'clock at night and came home at 830 in the morning. And uh, they worked hard. They vacuumed. They swept the sidewalks. They scrubbed the toilets. I mean, what Ralph says in the film is we, we do the pixie dust at night. And, and they, they really do understand how important that job is, that company. So what is it that they actually want? What is it that they wanted your help with? Well, they were sort of at wit's end because the unions had tried and tried and tried and the company was pushing back incredibly hard. And it felt like something had to happen that was like a wild card that would break things loose because otherwise the company was unmovable, as many companies are, especially where unions are concerned. I mean, at the time I met Ralph, he was making eleven twenty-five an hour. Mm -hmm. 11.25 an hour. So consider what that means at 40 hours a week and 52 weeks of the year um, to a father of four um, who doesn't get any sleep. So, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that that's poverty line wages. And given how hard he works and how critical his role is in the company, that just seems ridiculous. There are other things happening that happen also at other companies that employ people by the hour, you know, there's dynamic scheduling. So like sometimes they'll just schedule it some completely different time and you have to figure it out. It's not their problem. Or they might make you fall short of your 40 hours a week. So you don't qualify for benefits. They did in one department, they took it from 250 people to 200, but didn't raise anybody's wages. So they expected the same amount of work for the same amount. I mean, much more work for same amount of money. It was a lot of stuff happening. It wasn't quite as simple or straightforward as wages, but the wages were so egregious that that's where I thought we should focus, um, especially because there's a lot of energy around um, the, the fight for 15, which is the, you know, the movement to bring the federal minimum up to $15 an hour. It's still $7.25. Yeah, actually in Ontario, they just raised it to 15 and now there's people who want to push it to, I think, 20 or even more than that. But um, yeah. Yeah. Well, the pro problem with fighting for one figure for a living wage is that will shift. I mean, already inflation has pushed 15 down um, in terms of its buying power. So I always think that we need to be talking more in terms of like who deserves to uh, split up the revenues when uh, they come into a company. And one of the things that surprised me was that, you know, these employees of Disneyland, you know, they're not just they're not kids that are just trying to make enough money for college. Like I did when I was in high school, they're, they're adults, they're in their middle age. They're, they're trying to earn enough to feed their families. That's not really the impression we have when it comes to amusement parks. I'm wondering if you, Disneyland is unique in this respect. I think Disneyland is unique in this perspective, but that was exactly the pushback I got when I started talking about their wages, but it's a first job. It's a job right out of college you know, it's a starter job. And that's why the unions got together and did um, an analysis of exactly who was working those jobs. And the average age was 40. And so this was not a job right out of college. And so they, and there was nowhere, the company has long since stopped promoting people out of these jobs too. Once you're in one of those jobs, you're in one of those jobs, you're never going to be a manager. Um, which is a really important thing that changed at Disney as well, because when the company started, they were looking for management precisely from that pool of people. Um, but that's a thing that has happened with modern capitalism, too, is that like the hourly workers are sort of seen as um, sort of this pack of cattle, you know, that are herded in and out of places, endlessly replaceable, but not of any value or importance. And um it was the kind of job that, you know, back in, I guess, the 60s, 
you could take pride in. It was something you could even like, you know, build a, I guess, a middle class life off of. That was kind of surprising to me as well. Yeah. You know, it was one of the reasons why I wanted to emphasize my memories, because I remember going into that park with my grandfather and I remember that he remembered everyone's name and they called him Roy. And, you know, and 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 he took pride in the fact that people supported their families and earned, you know, enough to have a home. There was a bunch of stuff the government was doing to make that possible, too. You could go to college for fifty dollars a semester back then. Everything was different because every presumption about what should happen around money and government business was completely inverted in the 1970s. You mentioned your grandfather, Roy, Roy Disney. He was the co-founder along with Walt Disney, who I'm sure everyone knows. Um, What were their values? What kind of guided them when they were running the place? Well, you know, it's interesting because... um, their father was a socialist um, and uh, yeah. And, and Walt learned to draw in um, a newspaper that Eugene Debs used to put out. So that's Eugene Debs being the socialist candidate for president, I think five elections in a row. So he was a clear socialist. Walt and Roy, I don't think had much interest in politics when they started the company. Um, But in 1941, there was a very big strike. Almost everybody at the company went on strike. And that was during, you know, obviously the height of the Cold War. Feelings ran pretty hot around that strike. Uh, It was very bitter. And as far as my grandfather and great uncle were concerned, their view was, we'll take care of you. You know, why are you demanding things? We're, We're good employers. You know, why? So, so they, they didn't understand paternalism, that what, what they were talking about was paternalism, and they really resented the idea that the people who worked for them had rights. So they came out of that period virulently anti-communist and right-wing. And today, you know, I mean, you're, you're not part of the Disney Corporation, I guess. Do you have any, you know, any connection whatsoever with them? No connection at all. I mean, other than owning shares and sure. caring. <laughs> and caring. <laughs> but do you, I mean, you're, you know, the, the film is very critical of Disney and you're, you've been pretty critical. Do you, any, any, I guess, issues with the name Disney? I, did you ever think of changing it at one point? <laughs> yes, I really, really did. Especially when I got married, that seems like an obvious moment to do it. And honestly, I came right up to the edge of doing that and I pictured it and I realized I actually, in ways I hadn't admitted to myself, was proud of the name. You know, I, I was in graduate school in the 1980s, and um, the graduate school, everybody is a lefty in graduate school. And in those days, people remembered just how right-wing my grandfather and great-uncle were. And so I was actually starting at a deficit anytime I introduced myself with my last <laughs> name with everybody, <laughs> professors, other students. So, you know, it was really hankering to to change it. And then I realized that I wasn't going to let those people bully me anymore and that there were things to be really, really proud of. And I, and I firmly believe that I can't I wouldn't even recognize America if it didn't have Disneyland and Disney World in it. It's so um, it's so important to how we understand ourselves as a country in the best possible way, which is why so many people across the spectrum care so much about it. And there's a lot of people maybe who will take you more seriously if they know that you have the Disney name, right? Yeah. But but then again, there are a lot of people who take me less seriously. True. <laughs> it works Fair both enough. ways. <laughs> uh, I learned from this film that uh, Disney's former CEO, Bob Iger, I think he made $64 million in one year. 65. Um, 65, pardon me. Um, so, I mean, we see that, you know, Disney's, or Disney employees, are, they're, they're 
sleeping in their cars. They uh, are on food stamps, some of them. But, you know, this is a rich company and they could obviously, I guess, afford to pay workers a yeah. living wage. So, I mean, I just I just can't understand this, 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 I don't know, this discrepancy here. Yeah. And, and one of the things that's remarkable to me is that my right wing grandfather in 1968, 69, would never treated his employees, never have treated his employees the way they're being treated under an ostensibly, you know, accused to be woke um, corporate governance. So that's an interesting thing, right? Because there was a big shift in American life and politics and economics that happened over the last 50 years. And it kind of happened quietly. We It was shifting dramatically, and yet we didn't notice it. And, and so the presumptions, particularly around shareholder value, and what the job of a CEO was completely turned on their heads. Milton Friedman wrote an article that was published in the New York Times in 1971 saying the only job of a CEO is to increase shareholder value. Everything will be better because people will have more money and then everybody will be rich and free. So <coughs> clearly that was patent nonsense, but, but that um, ideology was subsumed into everyone in the business world. And so what I'm talking about right now is kind of apostasy. You know, I'm, I'm, they would, if they could burn me at the stake, I probably would find myself smelling delicious. But um, I, I, I believe that we've lost sight of the fact that shareholders, yes, they're owners of the company. They deserve to receive some value in exchange for all the capital they put up for the company. But work is capital, too. And, you know, without that form of capital, there wouldn't be any kind of company to be talking about. So Disney has placed a lot of emphasis on things like share buybacks, which are a way to return value to shareholders. They're also a way to manipulate the share price to make sure that it pops up at the ends of quarters so you look better. Um, and, and then dividends and things like that. So the emphasis has been truly only on shareholder value, which over the long term, there are many, many, many studies from Harvard and other places that show over the long term, that's bad, not good for a company. That long-term value, if the shareholders care about long-term value, is, is, more, um, is better under circumstances where it's not just the shareholders who are benefiting. And by the way, a share buyback, which is, you know, it, most people don't know what it is, but basically the company buys back its own shares um, in order to drive up the price and return value to the uh, shareholders. That was illegal until 1984 because it was seen as so unscrupulous. Yeah, the film really does show kind of the change from like, you know, in, I guess in the 50s and the 60s when there was more, I guess, constraints on corporations. And then, you know, I guess with Reagan in the 1980s, there was this ideology of greed is good and Wall Street and basically like unions and government shouldn't be trusted. And, and it's the free market that we should be uh, believing in. Right. That, that ideology right. kind of really gets, I guess, pushed down people's throats. Yes. Yes. I mean, Reagan, Reagan was the result of 10 incredibly efficient and um, intense years of activism in the far right wing around this idea of free market, market ideology. If you think about it, the Powell memo is this memo that one of the members of the um, uh, Chamber of Commerce wrote in 1971, describing what would have to happen to turn America into a business-friendly country. And it included things like unions have to go, they're bad. 
um, you know, shareholder value has to be, uh, you know, privileged. We need our own form of the press. We need to invest in um, think tanks and professorships. We need to push back on textbooks. I mean, basically reading it today is like reading the plans for the building you're standing in because you really see that that was the recipe for getting us to today. So it's remarkable that in less than 10 years, they were able to elect their poster child. And Reagan run, ran in the primary in 1976 and lost to Gerald Ford because he was perceived to be too radical. Um, and But in just four years, he started, and, and he's been celebrated ever since as the, the great guy in the middle, which he never, ever was. Yeah. Well, I, COVID, this film is is obviously affected by COVID, like everyone has been affected by COVID. The people in the film have been affected by COVID. Uh, everyone except the Disney executives, it seems. They didn't mm-hmm. seem to take as much of a brunt from the pandemic as the rest of uh, the uh, employees that they, they, they've hired. Um, what impact did COVID, I guess, have on at least the people in your film? Well, they obviously got um, either laid off or furloughed. Um, and that meant they weren't receiving pay. So that is everything. If you're living from paycheck to paycheck and the paychecks stop, you're in some trouble. So they were relying on the food bank themselves, the food bank that they had set up, um, and they were sort of scrounging. There was really nothing anyone could do until those checks came from the government. And, you know, a lot of articles ran right before COVID about how the average American family doesn't have a thousand dollars for an emergency. And then we had that emergency. So we already knew that nobody had any savings. So the the company did keep them on for a few weeks and then let them go and, and basically said, okay, government, this is your problem now. Um, and then they, they, brought a lot of people back at the end when they did open back up again, but not everybody. They used COVID as an opportunity to um, rethink how many people were working there. Um, I think every business in America recognized that they could slip in some quote unquote efficiencies um, under the guise of COVID that they'll keep, you know, they've automated things that wouldn't have been automated and so forth to save themselves some money. So it affected them in the short term, obviously, because they had to rely on pantries and schools to feed their children. And in the long term, it's going to affect worker conditions for everybody in a bad way. I want to switch gears a little bit because the film isn't just about uh, wealth inequality. I mean, there's also this uh, myth of the American dream and that yeah. Disney helped to promote that I thought was really interesting. And we see footage from Disneyland of black and indigenous people doing dances, putting on a show, you know, re, kind of reinforcing these stereotypes. And there's a whole soccer conversation we could have about just their movies. But I'm wondering why you chose to highlight that aspect of Disney as well. I don't think any responsible human being can talk about the Walt Disney Company, historically speaking, and not talk about race. And you, you feel a little, because it's so erased and invisible at the parks and in the movies, you feel a little impertinent to bring it up. You know, you really do feel like, well, why am I bringing it? It has nothing to do with this. Well, that's the point where you don't see it. It matters the most. You have to bring it up. So, um, and it was really important to point out that the American dream, as we thought we were living it in the fifties and sixties, when we had really strong unions and lots of government support for working class families before Reagan starts to um, deconstruct all of that, 
was it really an American dream for people of color and lots of other people in this country? So it was really important to say that that first iteration of the American dream was deeply flawed. And the flaw in it was its downfall, because the fact is that because people um, still harbored uh, a lot of resentments, racial resentments and other kinds of resentments, um, they could easily be divided against each other. And that's exactly what the right wings did. They came in and they played on racial resentment to pull people into this free market ideology that they had. Was it hard to get the footage for some of those scenes? Because I can't imagine Disney was cooperative about no, showing some no, of this. No, but there's, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of footage you can find in archives. You'd be amazed. There's a world out there in the archives if you know how to find them. And then in, in, there were a lot of YouTube videos of families just having a nice time, which was really nice to work with. And the images aren't hard to come by if you look at Disney in the 50s and 60s. The Aunt Jemima um, dancing was from the, the tape of the opening ceremonies that went out live on American television because that was not remarkable at the time. It's an interesting image to, if, when you contrast it with today's Disney, which is, I think, trying to appear more progressive, more woke. And if you watch any Marvel movies now, or if you look at the Star Wars movies, or even any Pixar film, they're very diverse. They very, they're, they're really emphasize inclusivity. I wonder what you think of that shift, I guess. I, I love it. I mean, I, I was just saying to someone last night, because she, I was at something where she's saying the colors of the wind. And I remember when Pocahontas was coming out, my children were little, and I was terrified of what Pocahontas would be like. And the trailer for the film was just that song. And I was sitting in the movie theater with my kids watching another movie and saw that trailer and I wept. I wept because the song was so good and powerful and said everything. So I've been really proud of what the company's done in turn. And they really brought in voices inside behind the camera to help them do this well and right and not, you know, in a, in a hand-fisted way. So all of that is good. Of course, that all um, gets them labeled as woke and woke is a bad word um, in the right wing. And, and unfortunately, people on the left wing are too stupid to recognize that it's not a bad word. <laughs> it's actually a good thing. Um, so it's played really nicely in, with Ron DeSantis in Florida into the culture wars. And um, I think that the right wing is testing the waters to see how far they can go with American companies, how, how much they can flex their muscles and uh, push them to get in line with the program. I wanted to ask you about that Ron DeSantis thing, because, I mean, he, Disney seems to be in this very weird place right now. I mean, they were criticized by some on the left uh, and even their empl own employees for not taking a stand against this bill mm -hmm. in Florida. I think it's called the Parental Rights in Education, also yes. known as Don't Say Gay. Don't Say Gay. Bill. But uh, they came out eventually against it. And Governor DeSantis retaliated, basically moved against Disney's. I didn't know this. They have a self-governing status over their properties in Florida. So they're actually like a mini government in a way, which is very yeah. uh, interesting Weird to me. Weird and probably yeah. unconstitutional. Well, yeah. yeah, I was wondering, do they have a police force? Like, <laughs> Yeah, they have their own police force, their own ambulance. And what I didn't know until all this happened was that Reedy Creek, which is the name of the the sort of governance um, was saving taxpayers a billion dollars a year, actually. And, and it does make sense to me when I think about, like, if you have an incident inside of the park, you can't have the Orlando police coming in 
armed and, you know, I mean, like Disney has always managed to troubleshoot problems in the park in a way that is quiet, that doesn't scare people. And they've done a really good job of that. Um, so I don't I don't see, you know, like your standard, you know, Orlando cop coming in with his gun out trying to resolve something happening. It's 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 a good thing, really, ultimately, even though I think they shouldn't have it. It's probably not right. <laughs> Um, but but take all of that out of it and just look at what happened. You know, first, Bob Chapek, the new CEO, um, kind of tried to say nothing, which is pretty standard business behavior. Like, I'm not political. I'm not going to get in your fights. We're not left and we're not right. Uh, the right wing has left the left very little choice but to be left. I mean, they have chewed up and spit out every bit of middle ground that there is. So I don't think that's a useful position. Um, his company was up in arms and I was really proud of those employees. I've never seen anything like that happen at the Disney company before. So they really rose up on mass. And if you think about creativity, where we'd be in terms of creativity at the Disney company, we couldn't do like 99% of what we do without gay and transgender and people of color and so forth. So like that's key to a creative company. Um, and so he had no choice to, but to do what his workers wanted him to do was to take stand. What Ron DeSantis then proceeded to do is what fascists do. And I'm sorry, I know that fascism is a, this word that gets thrown around to whatever, although they're constantly calling me a socialist anyway, so we might as well <laughs> throw fascists around. But if you really look at it in terms of the history of fascist governments and really with a clear eye, Fascist dictators always bring business in line by affecting and, and pulling whatever political labors they have in their in their possession to force um, conformity. And that is what Ron DeSantis was doing. And I think that's what he was warning he would do. He wanted to take on the most powerful company he had because he wanted people to know, business people, that if they step out of line, he will do this to them. I, I can't help but notice, though, that there's sort of an irony here in that, you know, I, I think this film, I want to go back to the, the Disneyland employees for a second, because, you know, obviously they would like there to be increased wages. Uh, and certainly uh, your film also talks about just the fact that it's very hard to tax Disney, like governments are very reluctant to do it. And there doesn't seem to really be interest in that from government. But on this culture war stuff, on this don't say Gibbo and, 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 and getting angry at Disney for and, you know, bringing, you know, all the you know tropes about, you know, well, they're they're trying to groom kids with, you know, their messaging about LGBT kids and, and stuff like that. Uh, it seems like that is what got the ire of government and not, you know, the workers who are actually being exploited. Mm -hmm. I wonder what you make of that. Well, what you're describing is pretty pretty much how we've wound up with a disproportionate re representation of Republican power in our government because they tend to throw culture war things up in the air like a monkey will throw his feces around <laughs> and you know and they like to cloud the issues with words like emotional words like woke and groomer and so forth so that they don't have to take accountability for the fact that they have consistently supported policies that have really hurt workers and because they're a populist party and they rely on the people that they're hurting to vote for them. So this has been true since Reagan came out against abortion, which he wasn't when he first ran for president. He was a libertarian. So I 
think that um, what we're seeing is the logical um, result of 50 years of that kind of politics. Hmm. Well, we have to wrap up our conversation, but I want to go back to a word you used before, socialism. Uh, what do you want to see actually happen here? What, I mean, what, I mean, you've been called a socialist, but what is it that you actually want for these employees and what do they want? Well, you know, I, I'd like to see them welcome the unions back in, which is never, ever going to happen. I have a lot of things I'd like to have happen that will never, ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> but I would like to see them have employee representation on their board of directors. I would like to have them give people stock options so they could be part owners of the company and could vote their shares. I would like to see them um, recognize the value of their employees and pay them accordingly. Um, and, and I would just like to see, generally speaking, um, a wider view of stakeholder, who the stakeholders are in the company, um, and some recognition that the, that the bottom line um, is, is a bigger idea than just what Wall Street is telling us. That doesn't sound too socialist to me. I know. <laughs> All I can do is laugh when they say socialist, and, uh, you know, because it's patently absurd. And last I checked in this country, it wasn't illegal to be a socialist. No, it's completely legal to be anything you want, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they do throw it around as though, you know, the police are going to come storming in and carry me off. But, you know, it's what if I were, you know, I, I honestly I don't I don't I I'm not a socialist and I would happily support a free market economy with some restraints because left to its own devices, the free market will always devour human beings. So it, it, it is it is too um, Hobbesian um, to be left to its own devices. Well, on that, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Abigail, for joining me today. This was a lovely conversation. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Now, we did reach out to Disney for comment. They didn't get back to us. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention that when reached for comment by the filmmakers, Disney said that they recently negotiated a wage increase with several unions to $18.50 an hour by 2023. The living wage in Anaheim, which is where Disneyland is located, is $24 an hour. And that's the podcast. Special thanks to Abigail Disney for joining me today. The American Dream and other fairy tales was at the Hot Docs Film Festival this year. Look for it on the festival circuit. While you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us? It helps new listeners to find the show. You can follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. And you can follow me at Namshine, all one word. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell, and executive producer Laurie Few. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next screening. <laughs>